1: Well, boy, I'll tell you what has been a fascinating story in Wall Street has been Bill Huang and Archegos Capital. I mean, it just burst onto the scenes a week ago. $20 billion fund. Nobody had heard about it until we all heard about it at the same Hmm. time. And I'll tell you, Eric Schatzker and his team at Bloomberg News, they were very, very early on this story. They were absolutely, and they've been on top of it ever since. Uh, Eric joins us now with the latest Eric Schatzker. He's at large at Bloomberg News. Eric, thanks so much for joining us here. This is just an extraordinary story. The numbers are just amazing. $20 billion and then gone in two days. What's the latest?
3: Paul, it is absolutely mind-boggling if you think about it, a guy who had been a hedge fund manager. So let's give him some credit. Bill Wong starts a family office in 2013 with, you know, as we understand it, something north of $200 million. So he's already rich. And he builds this family office over time, making bets mostly in tech stocks, Expedia, LinkedIn. Some of those are kind of names from the past because LinkedIn was acquired by Microsoft, of course. But he also bet on Google. He bet on Amazon. And over the years, he steadily took on More and more and more leverage. And as we all know, having watched and, in your case, participated in Wall Street for many years, leverage is a double-edged sword. When things are going your way, you can become Mm. fabulously successful. And in his case, yes, his fortune actually at one point exceeded $30 billion. Wow. But by the, the other times thing is, things started to go pear-shaped, right? <laughs> Week of yeah. March twenty-second, Viacom trades down nine percent, twenty-three percent margin call alarm bells start ringing, and Bill Huang goes from twenty to zero effectively overnight.
2: Yeah, the one thing I, uh, one thing I, I don't get is how did he go from so much to so little just trading options? Because he
3: no, not options. These were swap agreements. I mean swaps. Uh, swaps. So
2: so so. But he's trading uh, derivatives that. Um, no, 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 no.
3: He's he's He is entering into swap agreements, just so that everybody understands it, because it is complicated derivative okay. stuff, as you say, Matt. He enters into a swap agreement. It gives him exposure to the underlying stock. It's like owning the stock, except it's, you don't actually have it in uh-huh. your possession. But because you're levered, because the swap agreement allows you to lever up five times, you know what happens if you're five times levered, right? Stock goes down 20%. Your equity is good gone. And his portfolio cratered the week of March 22nd. That's how whatever margin he'd posted disappeared. And that's how his equity blew to smithereens. So much so that the banks, which ended up owning the risk and having to sell it, and we've seen that, Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, selling shares of Viacom, GSX, IQ, all of his positions, some of those banks, Credit Suisse among them, Ended up taking enormous losses, $4.7 billion. The head of the investment bank is gone. The head of risk is gone. Another half, ex- half dozen executives, gone. It's incredible how much damage one guy running his own family yeah, so, office so, so, can so, wreak so your, on Wall Street.
2: Your story paints this incredible dichotomy. Because on one hand, he's, by all accounts, a very nice guy. Um, you know, Julian Robertson loves him. Um, he's religious he's got a big charity that he cares about charity and family are two of his three main things right Mm -hmm. on the other hand um he had a 60 million dollar settlement for insider trading his hedge fund pled guilty to uh wire fraud um and he seems kind of like a trader sociopath because he says he's not afraid of death or money which you see how that ends up right Uh,
3: yes we we have i would say without using the word sociopath that what you've just sketched out is the internal paradox of a bill wong on the one hand pillar of his church community this guy helped 1300 north koreans escape the hermit kingdom to freedom the guy is doing good stuff and on the other hand he's got this addiction effectively or what appears to be an addiction, to casino-like risk-taking. He's a gambler. Most of the great gamblers in the world know when to take some chips off the table. This guy never took any chips off Mm. the table. The only chips he took off the table he put into his foundation, and thank goodness he did because it's gone on to do good work and will continue to do good work because, so far as we understand, it wasn't exposed in this blow-up.
1: So, Eric, about 30 seconds left. This seems to be, I guess, the second life for Bill Huang. Is there a third Oh, it's actually yeah, the
3: him? yeah. We're with the third act, right? He okay. was Tiger. Then he had his own hedge fund. Okay. Then he had Archegos. <laughs> Where does he go from here? If risk taking is in his blood, and he just like you know Michael Jordan can't stop making Vegas, layups, baby. right? You'll see him back doing something. Is he going to be given the same kind of leverage? No, almost certainly not, right? Uh, there are just too many black marks on his record now for any bank to want to give him. But will he be? Doing something, you know, that involves incredible risk taking, you'd have to expect that he would because it's as as we've learned in the course of our reporting, it's in his nature.
2: Yeah, I I mean, this is also a thing I, uh, I was thinking about as I was reading your piece, Eric. Where does he go from here? Because you want to see him come back again. You almost want to see him get back in, right? Um, and maybe now that sports betting is becoming uh, more acceptable in the U.S., he can figure out a way to do that. In any case, Eric Shasker writes the cover story for Bloomberg Businessweek. Um, definitely check it out, if not on the newsstands, at least uh, online or on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're talking about the initial job claims, Number. And um, it's interesting that we've seen these initial job jobs claims numbers still at a very high level. I think, um, I'm not sure, but I think we still haven't come down under the record high from the great financial crisis in any week. Let's bring in Lindsay Piegza to talk about this. She's chief economist at Stiefel Financial uh, out of Chicago. Lindsay, What's the problem with the labor market in that you know we add 916,000 jobs and we have these incredible manufacturing figures? ISM is off the charts. PMI is off the charts. Everything looks like it's coming back full force, but we keep getting huge initial jobless claims weeks.
4: Well, I think this recognizes the fact that the recovery is going to be somewhat uneven. It's not going to be this very simple flip-the-switch scenario. Everyone goes back to work. It's going to be this back-and-forth, this ebbing and flowing of improvement. And, yes, we have seen payrolls jump. We've also seen jobless claims remain elevated. So, again, this really speaks to the notion that it's going to be some time before the U.S. economy recovers to a sustainable upward trajectory. I think also when we see this unevenness in the labor market, it, it, it in part reflects some of the policy measures that we've seen out of Washington. Remember, we're still talking about extremely generous unemployment benefits. And some businesses, particularly small businesses in the service sector, have reported that it's, uh, it's very difficult to reconnect with employees because of these very generous unemployment benefits. So I, I think there's a number of moving pieces, a number of different variables, but the take home is really, it's not going to be as simple as we're vaccinated, let's reopen the economy back to pre-pandemic uh, activity levels.
1: All right. So, Lindsay, you know, right now we're a, taking a look at the uh, President uh, Biden's latest fiscal stimulus plan, that $2.25 trillion dollar plan. What do you make of that? Is that is, is it, do you think the, the, the focus and the strategies behind it are sound or what would you like to see in fiscal stimulus?
4: Well, at this point, with the economy showing signs of improvement, vast improvement in in the labor market, in manufacturing, in services, in housing, I I think we really need to take a pause in terms of any additional fiscal um, spending at this point. Remember, the president just passed his near $2 trillion spending package just a few weeks ago. So the impact of that has not even filtered through the economy. We're not even seeing that in the data yet. The March non-farm payroll report more uh, more likely reflected the December stimulus that we saw under President Trump. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I, I do think that at this point, the government should be taking a breath. They should be looking at thinking uh, maybe more of a longer term reopening plan and perhaps getting a second plan in place. Should we see a second round Pandemic uh, occur in our in our uh, near term, so I, I don't think additional spending is the answer at this point. I, I am con- very concerned about the debt level. I'm very concerned about inflation longer term, and this this unsatiable uh, appetite for federal spending, I think, really needs to be nipped in the bud.
2: It's crazy if you're a journalist, though. I mean, what a story to cover. <laughs> how, <laughs> right, I mean, how many right. times in history have we spent? You know, uh, five trillion extra dollars in a twelve-month period, and you know the Fed has stepped up with how much emergency? Uh, you know, um, balance sheet. Trillions exp- more. Yeah, right? trillions more. Like, uh, like seven trillion more. It's <laughs> the numbers are uh, mind bottling, as Adam Johnson used to say. But how how does that? create inflation. Um, Is it does it just create transitory inflation or do we get some real inflation from that kind of spending?
4: Well, so when we talk about the transitory concerns of inflation that the Fed has been mentioning, they're not referring to the massive expansion of the money supply per se. What they're referencing is the fact that we do expect prices on an annual basis to tick higher because those low lows of 2020 are actually falling out of the calculation. So just by the nature of the mathematical equation, we expect that headline index to tick higher in the coming months as we move further into the summer. But, from their standpoint they're saying this this calculation this falling out of weaker prices is going to be temporary and they expect inflation to remain near that 2% level by the end of 2021 going forward however when we talk about this massive expansion of the federal uh, the federal government's balance sheet all of these dollars flooding into the marketplace, chasing after goods, chasing after production, that's where we see that uh, th- that increase in inflation. And that's where the market is concerned will drive the Fed's hand or force the Fed's hand to raise rates sooner than they're telling us mm-hmm. they will.
1: Lindsay, thank you so much uh, for joining us yet again. Lindsay Pieggs. Chief Economist for Stiefel joining us on the phone from Chicago talking to us about fiscal stimulus here. Um, again, we uh, haven't have really felt the full benefits, arguably, of the most recent uh, $2 trillion, uh, while more is being i felt discussed. none of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In Berlin, Germany, I guess not.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Forum.com.
1: Matt, you know, we are so fortunate here at Bloomer Radio to be able to tap into the expertise of leading physicians and scientists from around the world uh, during these past 14 months to really get a sense of, and, and really learn more about uh, the virus, uh, therapeutics, and now about vaccines. And our next guest certainly uh, is on that list, Dr. Stephen Corwin. he is a president and chief executive officer of New York Presbyterian Hospital. Uh, he joined us on the phone from New York City. Uh, Dr. Corwin, thanks so much for joining us here. I guess where we're at right now is, You know, people are, they absolutely feel like we're just on the precipice of getting to the other side of this. The vaccinations are ramping up, yet we're seeing cases surge in certain parts of the country like Michigan and others. How do you think people should be, I guess, conducting themselves these days here as we're right on the edge?
5: Well, I think we're at the beginning of the end, but we're not at the end. And okay. uh, for, for people who are football fans, you don't want to spike the ball at the five-yard line. <laughs> so I think that I think the re- reality is we still have to be careful. We still have the variant floating around. We still haven't vaccinated everybody. We haven't gotten to herd immunity. So if we can hold on a little bit longer uh, – Let's try not to have 45,000 people at a Texas Rangers game. <laughs> uh, we'll get there. Um, but it's a race between the variants and how much we open versus getting people vaccinated. And, you know, I'm really hopeful that by summertime we'll be in, in terrific shape, but we've just got to hang in there. And, look, I know it's daunting. Kids home from school. People want to get back to the way things were, uh, et cetera. But uh, we, we still have to be cautious.
2: How do you think the vaccine rollout is going? I mean, I know it's going quickly in the U.S. I think more than sixty-five million uh, people have received at least one shot. But is it, um, is it being distributed uh, equally across all um, different classes, races, creeds? I don't know what to say exactly. You you get my point, right? Is is there of course of course is there a problem well, I here? Think
5: that we've... Yeah. I think there's been a great deal of emphasis, certainly we've placed a great deal of emphasis on uh, equitability and giving people access to this. I, I would say two things um, to preface the, my following remarks. The first is, I think that the Trump administration got a lot of things wrong uh, with, with COVID, uh, but they got the vaccine development program right and the Biden administration has capitalized on that uh, in terms of getting this rolled out as quickly as possible. And, you know, we now have Pfizer, Moderna and J&J that we're we're now giving. And we have to evaluate AstraZeneca in light of uh, some concerns about data safety monitoring. That being said, I think that you have to educate everybody to sort of overcome vaccine hesitancy and to truly get population herd immunity. We're going to have to start vaccinating kids, which is probably not going to really happen until we get into the fall uh, and the winter, meaning uh, children under the age of 12. So we still have a ways to go in terms of children getting herd immunity. I think we can get the herd immunity by, in the September time frame for the adult population. Uh, and I think we're making a lot of strides on equitability of distribution.
1: Uh, Dr. Corwin, I'd love to get a sense of how the frontline workers at New York Presbyterian are doing. I mean, you know, hospitals across the country, but I really think about New York City a year ago from today and, and how incredibly taxed they were. How are the frontline folks doing at New York Presbyterian?
5: Well, you know, look, I, uh, running towards danger on this one, right? I think we have just absolutely terrific uh, people. I think that they've done an amazing job, but they're getting tired. Uh, And we still have a lot of COVID in the environment. So um, I I think that people see that we're we're turning the corner. Uh, But it's been a a tough 15 months for the country and certainly a tough 15 months for the frontline workers. But everybody in the country should be proud of the effort that all the frontline workers across the country put in uh, to this because we wouldn't be where we are as a country without it. And I can't thank every one of our employees enough for everything that they did. And many of them lost family members during the course of this pandemic. And I'm sure you guys know uh, people that, that were lost. It really has been pretty horrific.
2: But it also, I think shines a spotlight on how hard healthcare professionals work. I mean, Just in terms of sheer hours, it's pretty shocking to people from any other industry. Do you think there's some kind of progress that can be made in either paying them better or getting them safer working conditions?
5: Well, look, I think that uh, we collectively made a mistake as a country in terms of the amount of PPE we had in, in stock. The supply chain was very fragile. So, yeah, uh, we have to really solidify our supply chains, make sure that we have more onshore manufacturing, make sure that the supply chains are more robust so we don't have a repeat of that. Uh, that was really quite tenuous, as 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 you all remember. Uh, in terms of paying people more, look, uh, I'm a firm believer uh, that you have to pay people uh, for, for what they do. The minimum wage that we pay is $19 an hour. I know people are, are are talking about what should the minimum wage in the country be. But we people deserve to be able to make a, a fair living. And if they're in health care, they should be paid appropriately, in my opinion.
2: Dr. Stephen Corwin, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Dr. Stephen Corwin, the CEO, President and CEO of New York, Presbyterian, which uh, did so much to help a city under siege, really. And I think, um, at least in the U.S. or worldwide, everyone's appreciative of of healthcare professionals. This is Bloomberg.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic Forum.com.
1: It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined today by Jared Dillian. He's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He's also editor and publisher of the Daily Dirtnap. and investment strategist at Malden Economics. He's based in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. He's out with a fascinating column here arguing that, quote, SPACs aren't the only examples of late capitalism. And he suggests that excesses throughout the financial system raise the odds that the next recession could be our last as a free market economy. Uh, Jared, thanks so much for joining us here Tell us about why you think the next recession might be the last one in this economy.
6: You know, it's funny because when I started to write this article, I, was, uh, um, I, have, a, I have a cat that is overweight, and uh, we were buying her a food puzzle. I don't know if you know what a food puzzle is, but no. it makes it difficult for a cat to get the food. And, you know, I, I, I looked this up on Amazon, and I ordered it in two seconds, and I had it delivered to my house in two days. And it kind of reminded me of 2017 when, you know, if you're on, if you spend any time on Twitter, there was all this discussion on late capitalism and all this excesses of capitalism. And that got me thinking about Spacks and a lot of the stuff that's going on today. So, but,
2: but, but, but what? Uh, so it's going to be the end? I mean, what does that mean? If, if there's another big recession, we're going to have the state really take over?
6: I think there's, I think what's happening is that from a sentiment standpoint, uh, the bull market has gone on for so far, and we're starting to see a lot of excesses of capitalism. Money has gotten too easy. And, yes, I do think that we'll see more state interference in the economy if we have another downturn. And, you know, we're trying very hard to prevent a downturn. The Fed has taken the position that it's actually trying to prevent recessions. It's a very different Fed than what we had 20 years ago.
1: All right. So, Jared, I mean, we, we we step back here and we take a look at the marketplace. And just over the last, yeah, I call it, 6 to 12 months, you know, during this pandemic, we've had uh, some of the Reddit trades, the GameStops of the world. We've had this explosion in SPACs. I mean, you know, one of the – a lot of folks are saying – boy, there's a lot of froth in this market. There's a lot of excess in this market. There's a lot of speculation in this market. Do you see that as well?
6: Yeah, I do see that. And, you know, the SPACs in particular, the interesting thing about SPACs is, you know, I actually think SPACs play play an important role. I mean, the IPO process is kind of broken. It's kind of cumbersome. And there have been some actually really great companies that have gone public as SPACs, but there's also been a, a lot of stuff that is, terrible and uh is a joke so you know this is there's a lot of excesses in this bull market and if it continues we're going to get more excesses
2: so i wonder though what um society looks like after the end of free market capitalism have you ever seen the movie the animated film wall-e because <laughs> yes, I, I love, yeah i love i love the dystopian future of me getting amazingly fat sitting in a chair that moves around a cruise ship just drinking slurpees all day and watching tv like i'm not opposed to that if the robots take over and we just get paychecks
6: is that how it's going to work uh you know it's it's actually funny i mean it bringing up the uh you know the getting paychecks uh here in myrtle beach this is uh you know changing the subject a little bit you know, this is a hospitality town. I mean, it's a vacation town, so it's it's hotels and restaurants. That's basically what we have here. And Myrtle Beach is in big, big trouble right now because they cannot attract any talent to help out at these businesses as housekeepers or as servers or as cooks because we are paying people to stay home. And it, it's, it's – you can't get – you can't get meals. you can't get dinner reservations. You check into your hotel at midnight. This is a really extreme situation here in Myrtle Beach. I don't think mm. this this story has really gotten out yet.
1: That is fascinating. I mean, uh, you know I, 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 we we get these jobless claims numbers that we got uh, yeah, this morning, Jared. And yet, I walk down Main Street of any town in New Jersey, and almost every store has a help wanted. Now, granted, it's uh, it's I'm, I'm assuming it's a, it's a low-wage uh, kind of clerk type of role, but every business is looking for people. Well, and
2: Lindsay you know, just told us, Paul. We just interviewed the stifle economist, Lindsay Fiegza yep. and she said, well, one of the reasons you get these huge initial jobless claims numbers is that people get paid so much to be jobless right now. I don't want to sound like a jerk when I say that because— yep. You know, there are a lot of people that I'm sure would rather have a job than than not. And I mean, I mean, millions of people. But the point is, um, you know, paychecks that maybe maybe we're maybe we're already getting into that kind of dystopian future. I don't even know if it's dystopian, (laughs) but um, where do you think this all started
6: Well, I mean, the one thing that's going on is that this is going to result in inflation. And what's happening is, is that private businesses have to bid against the government for workers. So even though we haven't passed a $15 minimum wage, what we have is like a de facto $17 minimum wage because businesses have to bid against the government for workers. And, you know, back when I was on Wall Street 15, 20 years ago, in commodity prices were going up and people were wondering if we would have inflation and the economists at the time were saying you need wage inflation to have inflation and this is the beginning of wage inflation you know and if you go back to the 1970s we had this term called the wage price spiral where people's wages are going up and they spend more on stuff and you get this inflationary spiral like this is how this begins
1: so jared we have uh, more fiscal stimulus coming down the pike here how do you view that?
2: Only a couple trillion, though.
6: Yeah, it's only a couple right. trillion. <laughs> uh, I, view it, I view it very negatively. I mean, a lot of this stuff that we're doing uh, on the fiscal side and also on the monetary side was intended to be an emergency measure. You know, all the Fed's liquidity programs, the corporate bond liquidity programs, municipal bonds, stuff like that, that was supposed to happen during the pandemic, and then it was supposed to go away. But it hasn't gone away. And, you know, we've done three stimulus checks right now and we can't seem to be able to stop, even though, you know, the pandemic isn't really over, but it's it kind of mostly over. So I think it's time to start pulling back these emergency measures and let the economy get back to normal.
2: One of the cool things that we have seen, and I don't know if this would be an example of the, the kind of excess you're talking about, is people are now going to, are, have now been paying like serious amounts of money for newsletters. And, you know, this is something that hasn't happened since I think, you know, back in the 1800s. Um, it's a great way for journalists to make money. And I was just thinking, because I've been a longtime subscriber of the Daily Dirt Nap, uh, you can make <laughs> a lot of money that way. Um, you know, it's pretty popular and people are starting to pay like, you know, like, yep. uh, like, Five bucks, ten bucks, twenty bucks a month for these newsletters. Anyway, Jared Dillian, great to get your take. Um, fantastic column. You can check out that piece and uh, all of the opinion pieces by typing O P I N Go on your Bloomberg terminal or bloomberg.com/slash/opinion. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast,
1: you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
0: Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the future investor